Welcome back to the MicroConf podcast. This is a MicroConf tactics episode where we cover 16 lessons I learned building a million dollar startup. Most of these tactics episodes are pulled from our YouTube channel, microconf.com slash YouTube, where every week I'm shipping a video about lessons I've learned, trends I'm seeing, ideas people should think about building, marketing approaches, growth thoughts, getting started, idea validation, all kinds of stuff. So if you're not subscribed, I highly recommend it. Before we dive in to the 16 lessons I learned, I wanna give a shout out to our MicroConf local in Atlanta. It's October 18th, 2022. So just a week or two after this episode comes out, I'll be sitting down with Ben Chestnut, the CEO and co-founder of MailChimp. It's gonna be an amazing time. It's a three hour event in the afternoon on October 18th in Atlanta. If you're in the area, head to microconf.com slash locals to grab your ticket before they sell out. And with that, let's dive into the 16 lessons I learned building a million dollar startup. In this video, I talk through 16 lessons I learned creating a million dollar startup. And if you stick around till the end, I'll give you a special bonus lesson that I think is probably the most important one of all. I'm Rob Walling. I'm a startup founder who's created multiple million dollar startups, the author of three books, and an investor in more than 100 companies. So let's start with lesson number one. It's to start with a problem. Throughout this video, I'm gonna focus on my most recent SaaS startup that I sold a few years ago. It's called Drip. And it started off as just a little email capture widget. It became an ESP or an email service provider and eventually became a pretty sophisticated marketing automation platform. And so back a decade ago, when I was coming up with the idea for Drip, it all started with a problem I was having. It was my previous SaaS startup I was running. It was called Hittail, which was a SaaS long tail SEO keyword tool that had a ton of traffic, but wasn't capturing enough trials. It wasn't capturing a lot of email addresses. And so I wanted to be able to capture emails on every page of the Hittail website. And so we went and built a custom JavaScript pop-up. You had to do it custom back then. And all told, we spent close to a week of developer time trying to put this together. That's a problem. And I decided to productize that. And then you know, the, rest, the rest is history. And we'll get into that throughout the rest of this video. What's interesting is every year we do something called the state of independent SaaS survey and report. And we ask folks how they came up with the idea for their startup. And the vast majority, just under 80% of people who respond say that their idea came from a problem that they had themselves or someone they knew or someone at their work experience. A big mistake that I see startup founders making is getting a bit too clever and just building something new because it's novel, but they don't start with a problem and that doesn't tend to work out so well. Lesson number two is to try to validate your idea before you start building. I say try to validate because this is, it's hard to do. And frankly, you're never going to get to 100% validation. Is it possible that you talk to a bunch of people, they say they want it, you build it and no one uses it? Of course it is, because there's so many other variables in there. Depends on how you build it. Depends on exactly what you build. Depends on if the people are, are actually telling you what they, they really think. The more people you talk to, the bigger the launch list you build, the more folks who say, I really want that, the higher that percentage raises, right? And maybe you only get it to 40 or 60 or 70%. You never get to 100, but you at least increase that percentage the more folks you talk to. So I spoke with 17 SaaS founders. I got 11 folks who said, yes, I will at least try, and that'll be worth between 50 and $100. You can do this in many ways. You can actually have conversations. You can send emails like I did. There were warm emails to folks that I knew. You can set up a landing page and drive traffic to it. You can talk directly to people. You can post in MicroConf Connect, Indie Hackers, Hacker News, and get people to weigh in on whether they would use it. It's not foolproof. It only gets you so far. But 
Being a founder is making hard decisions with incomplete information. You will never get to 100%, but at least you can increase your chance of building something that people want and are willing to pay for. Lesson number three is to start marketing the day you start coding. A big mistake I see founders make is they go in their proverbial basement, they write a bunch of code for six to 12 months, and then they come out and they expect the product hunt or the Hacker News launch is gonna make their company. That's a problem. What you want is a massive launch list. The bigger, the better. The bigger with qualified people, the better. During the time that we were writing the software, which is about seven months, I went on a bunch of podcasts. I was actually running Facebook ads to a landing page. I was generally just promoting landing page and wound up getting 3,400 people interested in hearing about it. And if you architect your launch well, and you communicate with these folks along the way, and you send them updated screenshots, you can even survey the audience. We sent a survey to folks to find out really what should we build next? Because I wanted a V1 that was helpful, but we didn't want to spend two years building it. So I actually used the audience to help us guide a little bit, as long as that stayed within the vision that I had as a founder. So again, start marketing the day you start coding. Lesson four is to consider a slow launch. You might hear about some startups that launch their product and they go out and they do the big splash, right? They email their entire list, thousands of people come pouring in, product hunt, hacker news, Reddit, whatever it means to you to launch a product. Everyone comes in, they don't have product market fit, they haven't built something people want and are willing to pay for. And so everyone just bleeds out and they churn. Most products in the early days are not great. And so something we did, because we knew our product was, was decent, but it was very simple. And so we did a slow launch where I would email between three and 500 people on our list, get them into the product, they would play around with it, and I would start talking to them, emailing with them, seeing what problems they had. We discovered a few bugs. We realized we needed to build more features. So we would do a launch, then we would build. Then we'd do a launch, and then we would build. And so it took us from about July until November, so almost five months, to fully launch to that 3,400 person launch list. And I felt so much better about launching because we had done that slow launch and taken our time. I should insert here, this is not a stealth launch. You might hear people talking about stealth, which is where they have a company name or a product name, but they're not talking about what they're building. That's not what I'm talking about at all, because I was talking all over the place about exactly what we were building. But it was that from the day that we started letting people in until the actual day we opened the floodgates was five months, and that's why I call it the slow launch. Lesson number five is to be willing to pivot. I said above, being a founder is making hard decisions with incomplete information. And that's what's likely to happen to you. You're gonna have a thesis, you're going to build a product, you're gonna slow launch it maybe, you're gonna have some people use it, and you're gonna find out that you haven't built something that people want and are willing to pay for. And then you're gonna have to figure out what to do because oftentimes just adding incremental features is not gonna get you there. And so you have to take these, these, these muddy, unclear signals and at a certain point, you may have to make the hard decision to pivot. And that's what we did. We were just an email capture widget that sent some emails and we realized we just weren't that valuable. We weren't worth a 50 to $100 price point that I wanted to charge. But it turns out we were adjacent to a market, a very large, a very competitive market with a lot of money in it. I was told this by customers who were using Drip and they started telling me, have you thought about adding automations, email automations to this? We can click a link and send someone into this list or you can tag them. And it took me a couple months to get over my own internal mental blocks and to decide to really pivot the product away from just this email capture widget to become a full service email service provider and marketing automation platform. Lesson number six is to stair step. And when I say stair step, I'm referring to the stair step approach to bootstrapping. You can read all about it on my website. We will link it up in the comments. But stair stepping implies that you build something small, you get some success, and then you build on that until you own your time. And then you have the resources, the money, the confidence, the experience to build something complex. And folks starting with SaaS often find that it's so hard to build it and maintain it and get the features right and find product market fit that starting there 
is hard. And frankly, with Drip, we wouldn't have been successful had I not had these prior startups that were kicking off cash. I took capital from my other company, 150 to $200,000 to get us to the point where we could fund Drip to actually build an ESP because let's be honest, building a, an email service provider today, it's a lot of dev hours because these are very complex products. It's a competitive space. And so without the stair-step approach, we wouldn't have been able to fund the development of it to get it to the point that it is today. Lesson number seven is to enter a large proven market with a hated incumbent. And this one I want to caveat because this is not the only way to build a successful startup. You can absolutely do it in a small market or an unproven market or one without a hated competitor. But this was one way that we found hypergrowth, frankly. This large proven market meant that a lot of money was already being poured into it. And we found that there were several incumbents, several competitors who were charging a lot of money and didn't have great products. And so it became easy to come in build a great product, slightly underprice them. We weren't trying to be the low price leader, but we were able to be half their, their cost and still be amazingly profitable. And we pulled refugees off of those companies all day and all night. People were quitting in droves and switching to drip. And that wouldn't have happened had we not entered this large market. Lesson number eight is that an audience is good, but a network is better. Having an audience when building a SaaS product is fine and it is helpful. But if you don't already have an audience, I would not spend the months or years building one in order to launch my SaaS product. However, having a network is amazing. A network of people willing to give you feedback, network of people willing to try out your product, a network of people willing to refer you to joint venture partners, willing to promote your product. This becomes invaluable once you launch and you need assistance, advice, investment. It's something that I discounted as a solopreneur software developer for years and years. But by the time I finally built up the network and we did launch trip, I realized that the folks who, who truly helped me along the way were those that I had built strong relationships with over the years. Lesson number nine is that growth is expensive. In fact, fast growing companies are rarely profitable. And that's something I'm not sure I realized when we, you know, when we were starting drip and we're doing seven, eight, 9,000 a month. I remember thinking if we were just doing a hundred thousand a month, all of this pain would go away. And then we, a year or two later, we're doing a hundred thousand a month and all the pain didn't go away. In retrospect, I probably should have raised some funding. And up until my current company, Tiny Seed, which is the first startup accelerator for SaaS bootstrappers, I had never raised money. Everything was all bootstrapped, five, six companies, depending on how you count. I wasn't against funding. I knew funding had its purpose, but I didn't have the experience raising it. And I didn't want to get on the venture track. And today, of course, there are options to raise funding without having to become a venture-backed company, without having that implied Series A. But back then, this was 2013, 14, 15, as we were growing faster and faster, there really weren't any options to do that that I knew of. And so keeping in mind that growth is expensive, whether you decide to raise a small round of funding to help you with that, or whether you just buckle down and hire junior people and train them up like I did, know that if you're growing fast, it's unlikely that you will be a highly profitable company. Lesson 10 is that success is a combination of hard work, luck, and skill. Drip being successful and having now built several companies into the million and multi-million dollar mark, I realized that there is no one component to that success. Oftentimes there's a lot of hard work. Most people I know who build something incredible work hard. It doesn't mean working 90 hour weeks, but oftentimes it does mean putting in that 40 hour, 50 hour week, really focusing on what you want to do, really focusing on the important things and having the skill or the experience to be able to decide what to work on and to execute on those ideas. And finally, there's always a little bit of luck involved in your favor or against you, depending on how things shift. You can imagine someone launching a startup aimed at schools and then COVID hits. That's just a big stroke of bad luck. And that's out of your control. The things you can control 
or the hard work you put in and the skill set that you build over time. And then hopefully you have enough luck that you will succeed. One of the most successful American football coaches of all time is Bill Walsh. He coached the 49ers in the 80s and the 90s. And he says, control what you can control and let the score take care of itself. And for me, I know that I can control the amount of hard work I put in. I can control the skills that I develop and everything else, I let the score take care of itself. Lesson number 11 is that building a great team is a superpower. The startups that I see succeeding are folks who can recruit amazing talent and keep them happy and keep them all going in one direction. You communicate that vision as the founder, as the CEO. It's hard to get great people to come work for you because they have a lot of opportunity and hiring so-so people doesn't get you to where you need to go, especially if you're growing fast and you're moving quickly. And so learning the skill set to hire great people, to keep them happy and having that network that allows you to be able to, you know, circulate the job description when you have it, or to go to the network and say, who is the best person you know who has done this? And then seeking that person out and recruiting them allows you to build that great team, which is a skill unto itself. Lesson 11 is to fire yourself. One of the biggest mistakes that I made was I did a lot of the internal operations work at the company. So I was handling payroll and HR. We were at 10 people and I've just kept doing the stuff that I shouldn't have been doing. So realistically, as the founder and CEO, you're gonna have to fire yourself from jobs one by one. And you should be setting the vision for the company. You should be helping with hiring till you get really big and then you only help with key hires. And you should make sure there's enough money in the bank to get stuff done. And then maybe if you have skills in product or development, you can weigh in there. If you're a marketer or a salesperson, you can weigh in there. It depends on your skill set. Lesson 13 is don't be scared of funded competitors. Most of the time, companies raising funding, if you're skilled, they don't actually have more experience than you and they don't know what they're doing any more than you do. There are some exceptions to this. But with Drip, we were bootstrapped. We were in a tiny little office in Fresno, California, not a startup hub. And we were in the top 10 marketing automation tools in the world. Every competitor ahead of us had raised tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in funding. And we were doing it as this scrappy bootstrap team that focused on the right things. I'm not saying that funding isn't a tool and isn't a weapon that can be used, but if a competitor of yours raises a million or $2 million, what I used to do was set a calendar reminder in 18 months that if they weren't able to raise another round of funding that I wanted to jokingly come in and buy their assets, you know, buy their domain name and buy whatever else they had. Because once you're on the funding treadmill, frequently you have to raise every 18 months or else you don't keep going. Lesson number 14 is if you catch lightning in a bottle, consider raising funding. I mentioned this above, but I think it is a mistake that I made was to not raise 250 to $500,000. I was a little intimidated by it. I didn't really have the resources to do it. It sounded like a lot of work and a lot of headache. Turns out, probably none of those things were actually true. And we were growing so quickly that funding really would have been helpful for us. As I said earlier, growth is usually not profitable. And my life would have been a lot easier as a founder if we had some money in the bank, because I wouldn't have worried about making payroll so often. And we would have had more senior team members who could really push the business forward. Lesson number 15 is to be wary of startups in your space, not the large incumbents. Incumbents tend to be big and clumsy and slow. It's the startups in your space that you really wanna be worried about because those are the folks that are likely to see the same gaps and to see the same opportunities that you do. And it was definitely the other startups in, the, in our space that were really competing at the same level that we were. Pulling new customers, I call them refugees, from these large, slow competitors with bad UX and an entrenched sales process, it wasn't that hard. 
but pulling them away from the other startups in our space was. Lesson number 16 is that recurring revenue is extremely valuable. It's highly valued if you ever want to sell part of the company or sell the entire company as I did just a few years ago for a life-changing exit. The exit multiples on SaaS companies or recurring revenue businesses is very, very high. And you can pretty easily, if you're north of a million, two million dollars, you're talking four to 10 times your annual recurring revenue. Think about that. Every $1,000 of MRR you add is $12,000 of annual recurring revenue. And then just multiply that by five. That's $60,000 in what the business is worth. It's an incredible amount of money for $1,000 of MRR. And while that may sound kind of crazy, it comes back to the lesson that recurring revenue businesses are extremely valuable and selling all or part of your company is not as hard as it sounds. One thing that I wanna throw out, it's only tangentially related here, is that I wished I'd considered selling some secondary shares because I was worth millions and millions of dollars, but it was all locked up in this private company. I had no diversification and I was concerned every day that someday we might go out of business. We might ride it over the top and I didn't want that to happen. And if I'd been able to sell even 10%, of what I owned in Drip and take the money into my personal bank account, I know that that would have made a difference to me mentally. In a minute, I'm gonna tell you the bonus and perhaps the most important lesson that I learned creating a million dollar startup. But before that, if you enjoy this video, I would love it if you'd hit like and subscribe to the channel. We're putting out a video like this every week on super detailed and focused SaaS topics. So the bonus and final lesson of the day is that the hardest part of being a founder is managing your own psychology. So many hardships are gonna come your way and every day you're gonna have to ask yourself, is this thing in front of me a roadblock or a speed bump? Is it just something I need to figure out and drive over or is it actually business ending? Is it actually as catastrophic as I'm making it out in my head? Because I think a lot of us as founders, we catastrophize things and we see the worst case scenarios and knowing yourself, knowing your tendencies and being able to you know, decompress at the end of a day and being able to have a clear vision of where you're going and stay sane while you're doing it is an absolute superpower for a founder. So I hope you enjoyed my 16 lessons I learned creating a million dollar startup. I'll see you in the next video.